be in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 is where we're at. Last week, we were in uh, Revelation chapter 12 for a Christmas series, and uh, everybody's like, why in the world are you going to Revelation chapter 12? So we're going to use a more traditional text this morning, and as you're turning there, we're going to do our New City Catechism together. I cannot believe that the year is almost over. Um, Some people are like, I am so ready for it to be over, Um, but there is no magic solution come 2021. Many things will be the same, so... Let's make sure we're faithful in the moments we got. Question is this, what does Christ's resurrection mean for us? As a congregation, Christ triumphed over sin and death by being physically resurrected so that all who trust in him are raised to new life in this world and to everlasting life in the world to come. Just as we will one day be resurrected, so this world will one day be restored. But those who do not trust in Christ will be raised to everlasting death. Many of us this morning, you would hear that last line, you'd say, man, I need to... I need to take that last line out of there. But for us to fully understand and have impact on what Jesus accomplished, you have to realize that he didn't come to be another self-help teacher. You know, he, he didn't come to give us a good pat on the back and say, hey, man, guys, you can do better. You know, if you'll do it this way. You know, I mean, Jesus not only showed us the way, but he is the way. That's the, that's the massive difference that a lot of people who confuse Jesus, they say, well, yeah, his teaching is amazing. Absolutely. And I agree with you 100%. But the problem is if you stay there with he's a good teacher, then you completely and absolutely miss who he is. He is not just a great teacher. He's the greatest teacher there ever was or ever will be. But beyond that, he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He says there's no other way to the Father except through him. It doesn't mean that other people don't have elements of truth. It just simply means that those elements are mixed in there with lies as well or confusion, deception. And the word of God is not that. The word of God is breathed out by the Holy Spirit and given to us through men from all different eras from about well over 1,200 years at least uh, as we have the written record. And as we look this morning in Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Before we get into the text, I kind of want to do a setup. Um, If you've read the book of Malachi, you'll know that Malachi is hardcore getting after the Jewish people specifically for being unfaithful to the Lord. And that's the last one. That's the last prophetic book that we have in the Old Testament before we come into the New Testament. Malachi specifically, I believe it's Malachi chapter four, verse uh, five or six, one of the two, I believe it's five. He ends up telling him, he says, behold, before the Messiah comes, before the Lord comes, there's going to send Elijah. Now, Jesus in all three of the synoptic gospels declares that Elijah to come before him was who? John the Baptist. So John the Baptist fulfilled the role. He fulfilled as well as Isaiah chapter 40, where it says, make straight the way of the Lord. And that's exactly what John the Baptist was doing. He was preparing a way unto the Lord. There was 400 years, maybe a few more, but somewhere around that 400 year mark of basically silence. A lot of times when we read the scriptures, here's the problem I think some of us have. We're like, man, God visited them all the time. Why didn't he visit me? Okay, what you're doing is you're taking elements of in some cases, hundreds of years and one visitation here, one visitation here, which was extremely unique in and of itself, and then saying, well, I don't understand why God doesn't appear to me. I don't understand why I haven't had any visions of angels telling me, you know, that um, my wife was miraculously impregnated. You know what I'm saying? I I don't know about, that should freak you out just a little bit. Like, you would never get that anyway. I I don't know why we don't see that. And here's here's the problem is, Many of us are not reading the scripture to recognize the fact that this is recorded specific events going throughout history that are very unique and very timely, 
bringing up the preparation for the coming Messiah. During the 400 or so years was upheaval, there was unrest. If you read in Maccabees, any of those, you're gonna find the history that was going on um, within the Jewish people and so many bad things were taking place. There was a sense of longing for the coming of the Messiah. There was a sense of waiting. And so finally the wait is over. The time of preparation is completed. He begins his entire uh, gospel. He says that Jesus, if you turn one page back with me, it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's kicking off the gospel of Matthew. He's kicking off with basically saying, listen, the promised king from David is here, right? Second Samuel chapter seven, verse 12 and 14. The promised king is now here. He's also saying that the promised seed of Abraham, the covenanted child, is now here. He is born. He has come. God is now, as we're going to read in a few verses, he's with us. The promise of the Old Testament has now found its fulfillment in Christ Jesus. From chapter 1, verse 18, for instance, all the way to chapter 2, verse 23, we see five different quotations about Jesus on which he says he fulfilled those things from the Old Testament. It's another way of saying that all the things that have been spoken about, now Jesus, piece by piece, is fulfilling them. It's kind of like a book of genealogy. It's also like the book of Genesis. In Genesis 5, it says, and this is the what? The book of the genealogies of these people. And it goes through this list of names. Have you ever kind of looked through the list, by the way, on, uh, on the very first of Matthew chapter 1 through 1 and 17? The list of names are categorized in three sets of 14 And Jesus begins the new set of what? Of seven. There's six sets of seven. Now Jesus sets the other seven. I don't think it's coincidence the way that he's setting it up, nor the fact that he excludes certain names and and has and adds certain names in here. If you notice the ladies that he brings up, all of these women have a lot of pretty much scandalous past with them. Not only is he bringing them into the genealogy of Jesus, but here's the other thing he's doing. These ladies in most cases were not Jewish. They were of some other descent, which is another way of what was prophesied in the Old Testament, not super explicit, but it was there, that God would include within his people, people from every tribe, language, and tongue, and nation. And Matthew is already hitting at it before we even get to verse 18. And so what I'm trying to do for you is to set up this form and set up this theme that there's something bigger, something better, right here in the person of the Christ of Jesus In verse 18, it says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And that is the word of the Lord this morning. How many of y'all know a little bit about Mary? Everybody would raise their hand. Everybody. I mean, if you've been in church at all, I mean, you don't even have to actually go to church to have some background of Mary. But to be honest, how much do you know about Joseph, right? You know a lot about Mary. You don't really know much about Joseph. Actually, I was asking this question to our 
our staff on the side the other day as I was kind of prepping for the message. I was like, what happened to Joseph, by the way? What happened to him? Anybody know? I mean, you don't hear about him. When was the last place we heard about him better yet? Trivia, all right? Luke chapter two. At the very end of Luke chapter two, we have the little narrative of Jesus. He goes into the temple his family leaves and he do, they don't realize he's not with them because that would be the right thing to do. But he was there inquiring in the temple, asking and answering questions. His family comes back. Mary and Joseph are like, why are you here? What are you doing? You, you're gonna break our heart kind of deal. And he says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house, right? This is the last time that we see Joseph. This is the last time that we see Joseph. We do not see him in the earthly ministry of Jesus. We do not see him, even if we didn't see him there, we would have at least seen him at the cross. We don't see him at the cross. He's nowhere to be found. And so, I mean, what, what happened with him? You know, I mean, did he finally have enough of the scandal of the virgin birth? I mean, how many people would believe that if you were to tell somebody that, ladies? You're like, yeah, I, um, I wasn't with a man. It wasn't anything like that. It was miraculous. God um, overshadowed me and I have a baby. Not a single soul in here would ever believe something so far-fetched, and they might even put you in Brentwood, right? Like, no one would believe you even from a moment or an iota, right? It's kind of like the lady who went down the road, got pulled over because she was swerving, and she wasn't on Stonewall Frierson. If you swerve on Stonewall Frierson, you are right. If you do not swerve on Stonewall Frierson, as the meme goes, you are drunk. I mean, anyone who goes, I mean, if you're not from here, then you don't even know what I'm talking about. But if you're from here, man, that road is horrendous at this moment. But anyway, there was a lady and she was swerving on the road. The police officer said, I need to pull her over. And she is obviously intoxicated when he gets her to roll down the window. Her breath smells everything like it. And he begins to say, ma'am, uh, do you know that you're uh, drinking and driving? She looks at him and says, officer, Jesus did it again. And he says, ma'am, what are you talking about? He says, she turned that water into wine. He just turned it into wine. I don't, I don't understand how he did it. You know, I mean, obviously the police officer wouldn't believe it. Obviously, no one else would believe it. And so what we see here is that I don't think Joseph left Mary. <laughs> I don't think that would ever happen. It says that he was righteous. It says that he was seeking to find the best way possible, even though he was going to do what was right, he was still going to be merciful to her, even in the process until God intervened. So I believe that Joseph died between the age of Jesus being 12 and the beginning of his earthly ministry. I believe most people go along that line, though I don't know how. But what we're gonna look at today about Joseph is this, I wanna focus on a few things, is about his obedience to God. When it comes to obedience, a lot of us sometimes think that because we obey God, things should begin to fall into place and things should be easy. That is not true. Um, I encourage any of you to find for me a verse or a passage that says obeying God will make everything in your life easier in the here and the now. I would love for you to find that because you're not. And then after that, I'd love for you to find a character in the Bible who was righteous before God, faithfully obeying God, and somehow or another they didn't go through hardship, trials, and tribulations. You're still not gonna find it. You're always gonna find people going through difficult things as they follow God because this world is what? It's broken, it's corrupt, it's twisted. And yet when we follow God, we know that we are doing what is right, what is true, and what is obedient to him. So we're gonna look through these things this morning. Number one, if you're taking notes with me, the call of God is always worth it, but it's rarely easy. That's one of those things that we just, I believe we need to embrace because if you think that obeying God means that everything is going to fall into place, you're going to be disillusioned in the process of that. If you feel like every single time, well, God, I, I did this, I did that, I, I followed, I, I prayed about it, and it still didn't work. We need to understand in many cases, especially when it's very clear what we ought to do, that faithfulness in and of itself is the success. 
in many cases. It's not always do we reap the reward that we think we should have gotten because in many cases we're like, well, it didn't turn out the way I wanted. Whoever said it was going to turn out exactly how you wanted? When did God ever promise it to be that way? And when did he ever once say, this is gonna be easy? The only thing he ever told us was that when the Holy Spirit comes within us, that Jesus' yoke, which means there is some things that we have to obviously do as followers of Jesus, will be light compared especially to the legalism of the law, which cannot save. But the call of God, it's always worth it, but it's rarely easy. Mary and Joseph are perfect examples to me of obedience. They're perfect examples of obedience because she's young, he's young most likely. She's most likely, I don't know, we'll throw a number out there, 16, maybe 18, but I'll, I'll lean towards 16 years old. When you were 16, what did you have in your mind? What ambitions did you have? Who were you going to be one day when you grew up, right? I love it now. You got some people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. Well, I don't know who I'm going to be when I grow up, but one day I'm going to get there, right? I mean, just think about it. Like we all had ambitions in our lives and we all wanted to be something, even if you didn't quite qualify it specifically, but there's no doubt she had dreams. There's no doubt she had some ambitions, but all of a sudden the Lord appears to her, uh, or an angel appears to her in a vision and says to her, you will conceive a child. And she's like, <clears throat> I'm a virgin. And he says, the Lord will what? Overshadow you, which is another way of saying this is going to be miraculous. The coming Messiah will come through you. Joseph over here, on the other hand, I mean, when he finds out, it says that she was found with child. That does not mean that she was hiding it from him. That means that she was with her cousin Elizabeth, and when she came back to her upper region where she was from, that all of a sudden you can't hide that. You can't wear a sweatshirt big enough when you're beginning to be seven, eight, or nine months pregnant, right? You just can't hide that from your friends and family, especially those who know you close. So I can only imagine Joseph walking up, and she's arriving into the village, and maybe someone even ran up first to tell her, hey, man, Mary's coming. She's coming. She's, she's finally here. Maybe she was sitting on uh, something at the time, or maybe they didn't see her very clearly because no one brought it to his attention. I'm just bringing some speculation here. But when he saw her, he's delighted to see her. And next thing you know, he's just over here like. If you don't see devastation in this for Joseph, then you don't see the text. If you, if you don't see Joseph's world collapsing in, caving in on him, and if you don't also see, for any of you who've been through it, a man who is righteous, who's seeking to do God's will in all things in his life, most likely, right? This is explaining him. Initially, it's shock, right? But from shock goes to why. And then from shock goes from why to the person and why then to God, especially if you're a firm believer in the Lord, right? Why to the person, but then it goes even further. You go up the chain and say, God, Why? Why would this happen to me? Why would this occur? Why would she do this to me? Why would she crush me like this? And she's telling me in this, she's telling me a lie. She's telling me that, that you are the one who's, who's bringing this about. Why? And then from the shock and then the why, it goes into what? Fury, anger, rage, right? But it says that he, in verse 19, resolved to divorce her quietly, which is another way in verse 20, he says he considered he was not acting out of overwhelming emotions. He was acting broken and hurt, but still acting in such a way that would be true to the law of God, but also merciful. True to the law of God, but also merciful. Having a child in the first century and not being married, I mean, today, it's still very difficult. 
But in this time, she could have been stoned for this. It wasn't an unusual occurrence at this point in time, but that was prescribed by the law for someone who committed adultery. Now, did she commit adultery? No. But how do you explain something like this? You can't just explain that away. And that's why God had to intervene, had to send his angels so that Joseph might not go through with this. Had to intervene. Can can you imagine how she would be socially ostracized? Because for some of us, we're like, either you're not living around family or in some of your cases, you have broken family relationships and therefore it really doesn't matter what they think about you. But in, in this case for her, it wasn't just that she would bring shame upon herself and those closest to her. No, she was gonna bring shame upon the entire village which she came from because none of them would ever understand. Even Jesus in his earthly ministry was ridiculed by the religious elite saying, basically, we know who our father is. You don't know who your father is. Basically, they knew. Before Facebook, before social media, they were able to track down and figure out like, okay, his background's not a normal background. Where he comes from, this is not, this is not normal. He brings shame. Can you imagine for their entire lives, for the most part, the ridicule for those who were close to him, the shaming, the sneers, Maybe over time they didn't openly say it, but the way that they looked or the invites that never occurred that would have happened to otherwise. You know, sometimes we begin to think, man, God doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't. He's been through it and more. How, he doesn't know what you've been, he doesn't know what you're going through. Mary and Joseph are such a perfect example of obedience. And this is why God had to intervene, because otherwise Joseph would have, he would have gone through with it. But how did he respond once the vision? What did Joseph do? Come on, tell me. What did he do? He woke up and he obeyed. And just like, it's not that simple. You're right. It's not that simple, which again is another place in the text, which is so easy just to scam, just go right through it and then go right to the next. It's so easy to bypass that. He woke up and he obeyed the Lord. It didn't mean he understood it all. Doesn't, doesn't mean he thought it was going to be easy. I mean, he knew the ramifications of what was probably going to go with that. Like, he knew. And yet he was faithful to the calling of God. And this it reminds me, if it doesn't remind you, Genesis 22. Abraham is told, what? Sacrifice your son, your only son. And what does it say he does? The next day he wakes up early. He doesn't wait late. He doesn't try to sleep in. Doesn't say, I'm sick to my stomach, God. I can't fulfill what you told me to do, what was very clearly said to do. No, Abraham got up, got Isaac up, saddled up the donkey, got two servants and said, it's time to go, son. But you know what happened on top of that mountain? The Lord will provide. All the way back with Abraham. A sacrifice would be provided, and that sacrifice was coming as the person of Jesus Christ all those many millennia ago. You see, 1 Samuel 15, 22 says it this way, and this is a good memory verse. It's short. It's not even all of the verse, but it's clear right here. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. A lot of us know what to do, but in many cases, we choose not to do it. A lot of us have a very good way of saying things and we have good speech, but we don't follow through with it. Obedience is faith in action. That's worth putting down. Obedience is truly, it's just, it's faith in action. James says this, you tell me about your faith, I'll show you my faith. You talk about it, I'll show it to you. Because there's a massive difference between those who talk about, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, but every bit of their life, and they know it to be true, doesn't look anything like Jesus. That is a contradiction in terms, and you're not deceiving anyone else but yourself, which is the most important person not to deceive. 
Stop deceiving yourself, for God is not mocked. This is a strange name, but his name is Winky Prattney. He said it this way, God is looking for willing hearts. God has no favorites. You do not have to be special, but you do have to be available. You do have to be available. And if some of you are taking me literally, I am not talking about when service ends at 12 o'clock today that you are marking off on your schedule from one to three, God, I'm available. No, what I'm saying is I've got room in my life. I make room in my life. I have room in my life that I might know you more. I might trust you more. I might grow in my relationship with you more. I make room in my life because what we make room for is what we prioritize. What we prioritize is what we find to be important. And where your treasure is there, you're what? Your heart, your heart. What do you treasure? What's meaningful to you? What's important to you? What do you prioritize? Do you make room and are you available, right? It's not that God can't do whatever he wants, but are you available? Are you available to the Lord looking desiring to be near, to draw near to him. You see, when we look at Mary and Joseph, we see such a wonderful example. They were nobodies from nowhere, <laughs> you know? They, they had nothing. She didn't have money. She didn't have prestige. She didn't have a background. She was a nobody, and Joseph was another nobody. And I mean, carpentry, that's honorable work, but it still wasn't royalty. It still wasn't majesty, but yet he's coming from the lineage of what? David. That's why the angel brings that up, if you notice that. That's very in particular in purposeful there. Joseph, son of David. Now, Jesus is not truly his son, but he is what? He's adopted into the family. Do we see another picture there about our own lives? Yeah. How would you like to be remembered, huh? How would you? I know that we all have ideas of how we want to be remembered by people, but really, how would you like to be remembered? What do you want, like one of those one-liners, pithy sayings, that's how I remember them. I remember them as what? Joyful, follower of Jesus, faithful. A lot of us are going to get hard worker. But how many of us are going to get to hear, man, that guy or that lady, man, they love Jesus. They love Jesus and therefore they did work hard and therefore they didn't waste their time or their money or their resources and they did some amazing things because when we're truly leaning towards striving after God, well, guess what? You're gonna produce a lot of things here too. It's only when you're earthly minded that you're not gonna be any heavenly good because you're not gonna have your mind on things eternal. You're just gonna be living for the temporal. I'd love what David got. David in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, not on the screen, but it's worth looking at later. He says, after David had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he died. We're all gonna die. That's just part of it. Do whatever you want, but you're still gonna die. And you're like, well, that's chipper. But what are they gonna say? And I don't mean the person who's paid to say it. What are they gonna say? What are they going to say? What are they going to think? David, after David had served the purpose of God, was David perfect? Not close. But he was a man after God's own heart. What will be said of you? What will be said of me? 
Because there's certain things in this life that are very much so temporal, but certain things in this life which are very much so eternal. What will we be living for? The temporal, the here, the now, or the eternal and have a long vision and long sight. You would think sometimes, at least how people make it sound, if you are following God, God's gonna roll out the red carpet, give you five-star treatment, and Ritz-Carlton's gonna be open to you whenever you need it, and that is not biblical. Before Jesus ever received the crown, he received the cross. Before he ever was exalted, he was humiliated beforehand. Jesus gives us the perfect and ultimate example, and you don't have to look far in Scripture. Look at Noah. Noah preached righteousness for many years and no one believed him. Even then, when everything was gone short of the seven other people with him, eight people left, it says that he still sinned when he got out of the boat a year later. Sometimes you think moving somewhere is gonna get you away from your problems. How about this? Sin goes where you go. Live faithful unto the Lord where you're at while you're there. And if God so decides to move you to where you're wanting to go, praise Jesus, but don't ever lose sight of the one in which we serve and the one in which we're faithful to, amen? It's the obedience to God, not obedience just to the temporal. Take Abraham. He moved from absolute comfort in the city of Ur. That's another way of saying you moved from New York to Timbuktu. He had no clue where he was going. He lived in tents the entire time while he was gone. He found himself in some precarious situations. And the Lord said, you're going to have so many kids. If you can count the stars, you'll get a good idea. If you can count the sand on the seashore, you'll get a good idea. He was 75 years old when God made that promise. And God didn't even fulfill it then. He waited another 24 years to tell him in 25 when actually Isaac was born. He was 100 years old. Now, I don't know about you. I'm 36, and we have one that is less than a year old, and he whoops my tail and Erica's tail trying to keep up with him, okay? I know that the Lord gave them unique grace, okay? I understand that. But to be 90 years old and 100 years old chasing around little Isaac, I can't imagine what that would be like. God is God. What else can I say? Take Joseph. He was in his prom and sold into slavery by his very own brothers. For over 10 years, he was a slave as well as imprisoned and then becomes what? The second most powerful man in Egypt to serve the purpose of God, okay? Take Joshua, take Ruth, take David. We can go all day long on this, but the greatest example of obedience ever was or ever will be is Jesus. He says, I do nothing of my own accord. I do only that which I hear from my father says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, that what did he do? Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When you live for God and when you are faithful to God, that in and of itself is absolutely a win. You leave the results to God. Too many of us are trying to control results, control the game. Be thankful that you're still alive and breathing and have opportunity to serve him, to know him, and to be faithful. Secondly is this, not only are we able to, to do the things of God, but there's a way, point two, that seems right, and then there's God's way. There's a way that absolutely makes sense to us, and then there's God's way, which sometimes just blows our mind a little bit. I don't know about you, but I think he could have made it a little bit easier. I, I think it could have been a little bit easier to segue in. I think it could have been a little more pronounced. You know, it, it, I don't think God actually can conferred and said to a PR campaign, like, how should we go about this? You know, should we get cameras set up where the baby's going to be born? And should we have people waiting outside in line, uh, paparazzi, right? You know, should we have all those things? We can write a book, you know, at different stages of Jesus's life, and we can get all these things going. I don't think God really cared or was concerned about that. And every single one of us say, I would have done it different. No, 
That's your opinion. We got lots of opinions. But Jesus is truth. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to man. Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Joseph had weighed the options. He wasn't acting irrationally. I mean, he was doing what he thought was going to be right. He thought he was doing what was going to be best and most merciful. But God had something else in store. Are you okay with God having something else in store? Are you okay with that? I'm being serious. Like, you don't have to nod yes. I mean, the church answers yes. All right? You're like, you're looking around right now. You're like, you too? <laughs> Me and you both. Are you okay with God's plans not being your plans? Are you okay with that? Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, I encourage you, if you don't write in your Bible, you should underline this stuff. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And that brings me great comfort. That brings me, <laughs> that brings me great comfort. I don't know very much. Haven't been alive very long. And even when you do get to live a long time, think about it. You, when you finally get decent at what it is that you're doing, when you're finally getting decent, you die. The only way to make sense of that is to laugh at it, right? I mean, seriously, when you finally are getting good at what you're doing, like you're knowledgeable, you're able to do it to a high degree, a high level, whatever, your body either fails or your mind goes. One of the two. Body fails, mind goes. Which always leads us to what? Don't get too comfortable here. We are seeking after a builder and maker who is God, who has created a creation for us that has no foundations. You see, God sees things in a totally different light. He's all-knowing, he's all-wise, and he's all-powerful. God does not ask for redos like we do. You know what? How many times you're like, man, if I could just do that one over... You should live in my house, huh? often. God doesn't make mistakes. He's not caught off guard. He didn't say, dead gummit, Adam and Eve. Why did you do it? I never saw it coming. He didn't say that. Did you see that in the narrative? You didn't see that in the narrative. You don't see it. You see God over here in many cases giving a human expression to the fact he's like, I repent of even making you wicked people, but I'll make a way. You see that again and again. You see, when Paul contemplates the wisdom and the knowledge and the power and the majesty of God, he goes off in the song, Romans eleven thirteen. He goes, this, he goes, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. And what does this mean? What does this mean that God's ways are higher than ours? That God's thoughts are higher than ours? That his ways are inscrutable? That everything about him is majestic and is beautiful and he's, he's beyond intelligent. He is the intelligence, right? What does this mean? Well, it goes right back to point one. You can trust him. Obedience flows forth from trust. When you're in a relationship with someone you don't trust, it's very hard to want to do what? 
obey what they're saying to do because you don't think that what they're saying is actually worth following because their character is flawed. Their personhood is flawed. What do we get here? God is absolutely perfect and there is no lie in him for he cannot lie. It allows us as the children of God, as people of God to obey him in spite of always understanding because there's gonna be a lot of stuff in this life that you're gonna simply have to say, Lord God, I believe it to be this way. I read it this way. I surround myself with other believers who see it this way. Father, I'm gonna walk according to the path because listen, Mary and Joseph could have easily said, I'm not, I'm not in it. I don't want it. And you never would have heard their name. You never would have heard anything about them. Remember, they're nobodies. They're nothings. But what were they? They were available. And they were obedient. What does this mean for us? It means you can trust God. And that leads me to my last and close here. In all things, this is the whole purpose of the all. In all things, our heavenly father is drawing his people unto himself. That, that is what he's doing. That is what Jesus came for. Jesus did not come to just be a good teacher, great teacher. He is, but that is not the primary. Jesus did not just come to spend some three, three and a half years with a group of small amount of people. He didn't just do that, though that's important. He, he didn't just come here to be born in a stable in a manger, swaddled in clothes. He didn't just do that. He didn't. He came here so that he might die for our sins so that we might have what? Peace with God the Father, which is another way of saying the relationship that was broke in Genesis 3 is now restored for those who in faith trust in Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Y'all ready for it? If you love me, you will do what? You will obey me. That is not the force. See, if you take it this way, well, if you love me, you're gonna obey me. That's intimidation, that's fear. True love casts out fear. What does it do? If you, what, if you love me, if you find me valuable, if you find me important, if you find me trustworthy, if you find me beautiful, if you find me wonderful, if you find me to be the creator and the sustainer of the world, all which is declared in scripture, if you find me to be that, if you love me, you'll obey me. God has been revealing himself all throughout scripture, all the way from the very beginning. Relationship and then broken relationship. We see a special revelation specifically in Abraham. We see an even greater revelation to Moses and the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, right? Ten Commandments, the giving of the Torah, giving of the law. Then we see a continuation of that in Judges, Kings, Prophets, Wisdom literature, we see this. And then again, what do we see now? We see the greatest revelation of God. We see the climax of all that God is seeking to give us that we might know about him in his son, Jesus Christ. Look on the screen with me. Hebrews chapter one, verse one through three. If you, again, if you haven't marked this in your Bible, it's, you should. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed to be heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So, he told Joseph, what are you going to do? You're going to name him Jesus, for he shall save his people. And this is to fulfill the word from the prophet, Isaiah 7, 14. It's, this is the word. And they will call his name what? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with 
us. How do you explain it? I don't have a clue. I trust that what God says about what God did, he overshadowed her. You're like, well, that's not enough for me. 99% of the stuff that you think you know has been secondhand told to you from someone else. You think Google gets it right every time? The virgin birth was miraculous, unexplainable in many ways, and has no counterpart. Now, I believe our salvation is very much similar in nature. Not the same, similar. What do you mean by similar? Well, tell me, what does it say about our salvation? It says, not by the will of man or by the will of the flesh, but by the will of God that you might what believe. By the will of God that we might come into faith in Jesus Christ. By the will of God that we might receive new life. And this is where Nicodemus, Nicodemus comes and he says, Jesus, you're a good teacher. We know you've come from God because otherwise you wouldn't be performing all these signs and miracles, right? That's what he said. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Go to John 3. Correct me later. He said, I, I, we know it. He's representing the other people who might believe in him a little bit. They don't fully believe in him, but we know it. And so what is he going to say? And Jesus cuts him off. I love it. Jesus don't waste time. Sometimes Jesus knows he needs to give somebody a hug. And other times Jesus knows he needs to speak straight into their life. Just go straight to the point. Because God knows exactly what we need. And so he goes to him. He says, unless you are what? Truly, truly, John 3, 3. Unless you are what? Born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus says, how, am I how are you supposed to crawl back in your mother's womb? Like, how, how do you do that? And Nicodemus is not dumb-witted, right? He's, not, he's, he's the highest of the highest when it comes to education, right? He's part of the Sanhedrin. He's part of the high council. He makes decisions. He's a powerful man. It's huge contrast between Joseph and Mary and Nicodemus, is it not? They're on two polar opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to prestige, power, money, and everything else. And yet he's questioning and they're being obedient. And Jesus goes on to say to him, listen, unless you are what? Born of water and of the spirit. And then he says in verse seven, he says, unless you are born again, don't, do not marvel that I say this to you. He says, if I tell you about earthly things and you don't understand, how do you expect me to tell you about heavenly things? Now, what's Jesus getting after? Unless you're born of water in the flesh or water in the spirit. What's he getting after? Well, some people think, well, you got to be born. <laughs> Jesus is not redundant. Of course you have to be born. That's not what he means. Well, where do you find that at? Water in the spirit. What does that even mean? 600 years before Jesus came, there was a prophet called Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, verse 25 through 27 says this. This is a promise beforehand. Jesus would fulfill it. I will sprinkle, you with, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to follow or to keep my laws. That sounds a whole lot like new birth, does it not? It sounds a whole lot like a miracle that only God could accomplish in our lives. And God welcomes Mary and Joseph through their obedience and humility to join his massive and beautiful story that we call salvation. Are you available? Will you be obedient? 
what we be known for. For it says in John 1, 9, it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now that, to me, is amazing. Our salvation story is not something you earn. It is something you receive by obediently saying, Lord God, I repent of my sins. I recognize my sins. And I call upon the name of Jesus, not just as some man or some teacher, I call upon him as the Son of God, Savior of the world. The one who died for my sins on that cross and who by the power of God was resurrected from the grave on the third day. This is the God that I call upon, his name. And this is the one we celebrate at Christmas. It's not the temporal, it's the eternal that we're going after, isn't it? To have meaning, to have purpose, to have something in our lives that is far more significant than just existing it's truly not how long do you live because if you notice Joseph went through all the hardship but he never saw Jesus' ministry he never saw it but I guarantee you there will never be a day in eternity that he'll ever say I wish I would have done that I wish I would have went my own way I wish I would have followed my own path I wish I wouldn't have been obedient. There'll never be a day that you regret saying yes to Jesus and yes to following him in his ways. Just simply won't be. I didn't say it would be easy, nor did God, but it will always be worth it. Let us stand before we take up the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you that we are able to read your word. We're able to study it. Father, not only as students, but also as sons and as daughters as welcomed into the family. Father, and we thank you that you give us something physical and tangible, Father, in of the Lord's Supper. You bring us back and remind us of the great salvation that we have inherited through Jesus Christ. You bring us back to not only the sprinkling of water, but the sprinkling of blood. The cleansing and the washing of our sins, the breaking of his body, Lord God, we thank you, Father, that we are reminded of what you have done in the great love that you have for each and every single one of us. Father, may we never turn our backs on you. Father, may we not run from you, but run towards you, Lord God. May you draw us unto yourself. Father, may we rejoice in our salvation. May we rejoice in the freedom that Christ has won for us. May we live for you faithfully, Lord God. May we sing of the living hope that we have in our lives. Father God, we thank you and we thank you that you've called us to such a great salvation. May this be a time of drawing near to you. In Jesus' mighty name.